The head of the Menninger Institution has stated that up to 70% of minor ailments such as colds and fatigue are psychosomatic reactions to day-to-day stress, but can lead to more serious problems. In other words, they're not viral in their origin. It's stress-related that are causing some of these minor ailments, up to 70%. The pressure that we put on ourselves to fulfill our master passion, whether it is the pursuit of, of money, treasure, or pleasure, or fame, and the like, it will keep us restless and wear us out. The only hope that we have of finding true rest in this life is to accept the invitation of Jesus in our text today. So let's pay attention to this passage and his invitation. Matthew chapter 11, we pick it up in verse 16. Jesus speaking, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Then Jesus continues, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, this is John the Baptist he's referring to, and now he's referring to himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Praise the Lord. He is a friend of sinners, amen? Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus is saying that people at large, they don't know what they want. They're conflicted. They're impossible to please. Therefore, they were given a joyful tune, he says, but they refused to embrace it and dance. They were sung a dirge, but they refused to mourn. John the Baptist was an austere man. He was a man of the desert. He was a rough-hewn man with a message, repent, brood of vipers. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was a friend of sinners with a message, rejoice, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Two different ministries with a common aim. Yet people were contrary and they found fault with both of them. Impossible to please. Even so, Jesus concludes, wisdom is vindicated or proved to be right by her deeds. In other words, John the Baptist and Jesus were not trying to win a popularity contest. The fact that their message caused people to repent and hope in God was proof that they were messengers of God. Most of the people, however, rejected their king, which left Jesus no recourse but to reject them. That's right. Not everybody's going to heaven. Which is a sobering thought. Verse 20, 
Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. They didn't turn around from going their own way to going God's way. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, he's talking about Lebanon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, they would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. These are all cities of northern Galilee. Uh, this, this area is Galilee. Of course, this is the Sea of Galilee. And you see those three cities clustered there to the north. And there's Tyre of Lebanon. And, and Sidon is just a little north on the coast from there. These cities are where Jesus spent most of his three years of ministry. Capernaum was his headquarters. Home of a couple of famous brothers, Peter and Andrew. James and John lived in Capernaum and made their living fishing fish. The residents there had seen ample evidence of his miraculous power. And yet they continued, for the most part, to harden their hearts in unbelief. They just refused to believe. Even though he's healing the sick, he's feeding the multitudes with a few loaves and a couple of fish, and he's raising the dead. And he's speaking like no man has ever spoke with such authority and power. And yet... It's bouncing off their hearts. And then he says, even Sodom, from which we get the word sodomy, even Sodom would not be as strictly judged as these cities. Why? Because though Sodom perverted God's natural law and moral law, Jesus knew that his ministry would have at least curbed their lawlessness so that they would have remained and not been completely destroyed. But here is Capernaum with all this light, this flood of light, this revelation of God's redeeming love day after day for three years. And yet the gospel had little effect on most of them. So that Jesus said their judgment would be all the greater. The principle is this, the greater the light, the greater the revelation of God, the greater the responsibility, the greater the consequences. A fact that the Western world should take to heart. 
Since we have had access to, to the gospel like no other people before us, no other society, and yet, for the most part, refuse to repent, refuse to turn around from going our own way. In fact, it seems with each generation we are going further and further away and becoming more hostile toward God and the Word of God and the people of God. Amen? You read the papers, right? You, you, you know what's going on there. You take the temperature. The animosity is greater than I have ever known in my lifetime toward God and the people of God. Renowned scholar and theologian D.A. Carson points out, there are degrees of felicity in paradise and degrees of torment in hell. That's what Jesus has just said. And a point that the Apostle Paul will understood. The implications for Western English-speaking Christendom today is sobering. Of all those who have ever lived on this planet, we surely will incur that stricter judgment if we reject or neglect Jesus Christ. As Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, famously said, if God doesn't soon bring judgment upon America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. A.W. Tozer. He said, Peace has fled the halls of learning, and if found at all, is found among the lowly. The problem with the wise finding peace with God through Jesus Christ is that their mental acumen tends to puff them up with pride so that they refuse to look any further than their own fallen intellect. Whereas a humble child is willing to trust in a loving creator, willing to trust in a loving redeemer, even though his ways lie beyond their understanding. They're, they're okay admitting, I don't know everything. I'm just a child. Great attitude to have and maintain. is why Tozer concludes, true peace is a gift from God and is found only in the minds of innocent children and in the hearts of trustful Christians. Only then we become, we come humbly, only when we come humbly to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith, does the Son reveal the Father to us. It's authority that belongs only to him, for he is the one, he is the truth, and the way, and the life, 
And no one comes to the Father through Jesus. This is a declaration Jesus made in the upper room at the Last Supper in John 14, verse 6. The way is narrow. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And yet, something as simple as childlike faith throws the doors wide open. The reason for this is alluded to in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4, where the psalmist asks this question, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in His holy place? Who's going to heaven? People that send missiles try and wipe out one another? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. One of, one of my tent-making escapades uh, as a young evangelist was operating a print shop. And um, nobody trained me up, and I had no YouTube. So it was just trips to the local print shop and saying, hey, I'm having trouble. Can you explain something to me? And, um, but I was, I was an evangelist in music ministry at that time. That meant I, I would go and stand in front of people with my guitar, and I would sing, and I would share the gospel. Um, but I, I couldn't figure out how to get the black ink out from under my fingernails. Yeah, oh, that people would look at me, and of course, if you're playing the guitar, they're going to focus on your fretboard, right, and your fingers, and, and you could see this from the back of the room. They were all just, it looked like, this guy, does he even know what hygiene is? I mean, he's just, does he take a bath occasionally, once in a while? And it was difficult to go there, and, and you know, I, I thought of Paul standing before Agrippa's court in Caesarea. And Agrippa say, hey, you know, you, you could, you know, maybe persuade me even. And, and Paul makes a, that famous statement that, you know, whether I would to God, he says, that all who hear me might become as I am, except for these chains. I felt like saying, except for these nails. What I am talking to you about, you need. You need this. Like I have it, you need it. Except for this part. This you don't need. It made it a little bit uncomfortable. And finally someone showed me a petroleum product that would just take that black ink out from under my nails. It was my printing salvation. All man-made religions are an attempt to wash hands with soap of human effort like Hamas is doing. Somehow, in their perverted thinking, they believe they are pleasing God by wreaking havoc and committing crimes against humanity. Sin has left an indelible mark upon our hands and our hearts that only the spotless blood of Christ Shed for our sins can cleanse. So that we may ascend to the hill of the Lord and we may stand in his presence. More than that, Paul in the New Testament says, come boldly into the throne of God. 
There are many Christians, and I've met them even in this house, that are still hoping against hope that God will accept them. You're missing the gospel. He says, God not only accepts you, he calls you to come boldly. As long as you don't bring your truckload of good works with you, you have access to God, who does all the heavy lifting. As the famous hymn puts it, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This is the central truth of Christianity. And God's sole provision for finding rest for our souls is this invitation. This invitation. Goes like this, verse 28. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble, gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my load is light. At its core, restlessness is a symptom of godlessness in the sense that the troubled soul has not had a come-to-Jesus moment. You know, the world kind of talks about that in a mocking tone. You know, have you had your come-to-Jesus moment? Well, my friend, without a come-to-Jesus moment, we're going to hell, which is what we deserve. So instead of mocking that, I suggest you apply it to your life. Thank God he has called us to come to him. Where we surrender to the Savior and are reconciled to God. Those who do take Jesus up on his offer, they find peace with God. Because that which separates and puts us at war with God, at enmity with God, has been removed. Our sin, the burden of guilt and shame. Again, which causes a lot of physical ailments in our body. Guilt and shame has been rolled away. We don't need to stress about that anymore. We don't need to live under that burden of guilt before God. But here's another kind of peace that brings another dimension of rest. Peace with God, as we've been talking about, is established the moment we come to Jesus in faith, but the peace of God. It fills our hearts and minds when we take his yoke upon us and learn from him, verse 29. Again, peace with God is what is established the moment we trust in him with childlike faith. But that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to experience the peace of God. There's another action required. There is the taking of his yoke upon ourselves and learning from him. This yoke, it represents that instrument by which fruitful service is accomplished. This is kind of a, what a first century yoke would have looked like in the Middle East. And you see oxen back here coupled up because 
the yoke would help them pull together the plow to, to, to uh, turn the soil, to plant the grain, and the grain would feed the ox and feed the farmer and many others. God has a good and fruitful plan for our lives that he wants to co-labor in with us. That we might be filled with that firsthand or experiential knowledge of the love of God. And then spread that knowledge, that hope and peace and love abroad with others. That's the work that God has set apart for us to accomplish. The problem with many of us is that we have either refused to take up that yoke or we're kicking against the goats because we don't trust that the Father knows best. We think we know best how to fulfill our lives, how to satisfy our deepest desires. So we refuse to be about our Father's business Worse than that, we might even kick against the goad. You know, the goad was that sharp stick that the farmer would use if, if the oxen decided he's going to take the day off. So he, it was just a little poke. It was a pinch. It didn't hurt. It didn't leave any lasting wound. But you know what would leave a lasting wound? The oxen decide to kick against the goat. Now he's impaled. And it's, ooh, baby, that's, that hurts. Are you hurting today? Are you kicking against the goats? We have to ask ourselves that. Are we going our own way, doing our own thing? It only perpetuates a life of restlessness. The one who takes that yoke upon himself herself, on the other hand, finds that they've been yoked with God. You know who these guys are? Let me, let me point them out here. Oops. This is Larry. This is Mo. This is Curly, otherwise known together as... The Three Stooges Meet Hercules. That's the name of this show. And um, so they're living in New York with their friend, Skyler, who's a neighbor and a scientist who's invented a time machine. Of course, they end up back in the first century on a Roman galley, a, a, a warship at the oar. You know, they're, they're the fuel that's going to propel this warship. Well, Funny thing happens, as, as they continue to row and row, their friend Skyler gets stronger and stronger until they have to start taking people from this side of the boat and put them over on the other side of the boat just to try to keep them going in a straight line. Eventually, everybody except Skyler is on this side of the boat, and all of the oars are lashed to Skyler's lash, yoked to Skyler, and they're still going in circles in the Mediterranean. That's slapstick. I thought it was funny. 
Obviously, I, I never forgot it. But <laughs> we are yoked with someone so much stronger than any Hercules and someone that won't lead us in circles. He's got this good plan for our lives, so meaningful. He connects the dots, so, so all of a sudden, life makes sense. Life is, is full of promise and health. He strengthens and sustains us all along the way when we allow ourselves to take up his yoke and to be yoked with him. Yet there is another important way that we find rest for our souls when we take his yoke upon us. Our yoke can be described as that desire or that drive to please self, which is a heavy burden because self cannot be satisfied. His yoke, Jesus' yoke, is that desire or that calling simply to please God, which only takes childlike faith. Our childlike faith pleases God. Simpatico, right? When Jesus says, my load is light, he's referring to the diminished concern of a life spent for and trusting in God. Let me say that again. This, my load is light line, it's a reference to the diminished concern of a life spent for and entrusting in God. When my sister worked for a branch of, branch of Mitsubishi in L.A., and they asked her to uh, go to Japan for a special meeting that they were having. She didn't go home and start worrying, how in the world am I going to get to Japan? And start looking at the airlines and, and stressing about, well, that's a lot of money. And it, obviously, it wasn't her responsibility, right? If Mitsubishi said, we need you in Japan, they will get her there. She had nothing to worry about. If we simply seek first his kingdom, that is, commit to being about his business, he'll provide all that we need to get the job done. Do you remember the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels? I must be about my father's business. What were the last recorded words? It is finished. And in between that, we have Jesus seeking to please God every morning. Not my will, but your will be done. Oh, that we would rise with that in our mouth. And what a diminished concern we would have in this life. No more psychosomatic-driven ailments because we're just trying to cope with all this pressure. He left us a supreme example of what a gentle, humble, surrendered life looks like, one that is completely at rest in the Father 
And then he admonishes us in verse 29, learn from me. You know, what, what you've seen me do, you, the way that I've lived, emulate that. And it will go well with you. Today, if the burden of sin and its consequences are wearing you out, as they are apt to do, let this be your come to Jesus moment. And he will give you rest. He guarantees it. And if as a believer, you find yourself resisting his yoke, his will, his way, his fruitful uh, service that he has for you, surrender your life anew to the God who is love. Learn from him. Become a true disciple. A disciple is a learner. That's what the word means. Learn from him. Abiding in his word. And then trust in the one who is gentle and humble in heart. And you too shall have rest for your souls. Again, he promises that. He guarantees that. Why would we not take him up on that? I want to conclude with this prayer of A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer kind of like a 20th century John the Baptist. He, he just a straight shooter. And this is my prayer. And I'm going to read it out loud. And if you want this to be your prayer, you can just read it you know, quietly in your heart, but own it. Father, I want to know you. But my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall you make this dwelling place glorious. Then shall my heart have no need for the sun to shine in it, for you yourself will be the light of it. And there shall be no night there. I take your yoke, Lord, and as many as are willing to pray with me, we take your yoke, we receive your rest. In Jesus' name, amen.